Greetings, friends of the great beyond. This is your ghost, I mean host, ready to take you behind the veil of terror and leftist critique. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. And hello, everybody, and welcome to another Arcane Book Club of Horrors. And in very special news, we have guests joining us for this episode. Uh, we are joined by Matt and Dean, hosts of the incredible podcast, The Magnificast. Uh, Matt, Dean, how are you both doing? Pretty Great. good. Very spooky. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting wet and wild. Because uh, <laughs> you're so scared. I uh, well, sure. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Let, I was just thinking of the implications of, of, first of admitting to that, but uh, I'm fine with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Great first impression, you guys. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure we are going to have to get into the three penises at some point. So. Uh, yeah, this this episode might be a bit weird. It might be a bit weird. Let's just get that out of the way. Uh, maybe the weirdest one that we've done in quite a while. Um, But before we do that, um, Matt and Dean, if you could maybe just take a couple of minutes to introduce yourselves, uh, introduce the Magnificast for people who maybe have not come across you and your work before. Sure. Um, Can I go first? Yeah. Sorry. This is is bad podcasting. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I'm Matt Bernico. I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois, and I'm also a co-host of The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. Uh, yeah, I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a PhD student at a place called the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto, and uh, I'm also a co-host of The Magnificast uh, about Christianity and leftist politics. Uh, brilliant. Thank you very much. Uh, obviously, we'll put, we'll put uh, links to uh, your social media to the show to the show's patreon uh in the show notes for this episode and we highly encourage you all to go and listen to the magnificast it is a fantastic uh podcast um and both of you do really great work so thank you so much for for coming on well you have to say that yeah, because we had you on our show once <laughs> it's fine but so so you, you've never had me so i feel totally um ethically uh free to say that the magnificast is an amazing <laughs> show and, and it was in fact the first like like when i started listening to like i, I guess like quote-unquote left podcasts the magnificast was oh, the nice. first one well thanks it's so weird that people listen to our podcast yeah it is i'm, I'm surprised I'm every time i hear it. about it yeah me either <laughs> i just edit it <laughs> Uh, but we we have we we were wanting to do an episode uh, with you both for, for quite a while, and so uh, this is what we this is what we've decided on. So maybe I think Matt, you were the one who suggested talking about this specific book. I did, yeah, yeah. Uh, would you mind Would you mind introducing what we're talking about today? I would absolutely love to, to tell you about it. Um, okay, <laughs> so we were in the DMs. We we're chatting about what we wanted to do, and when anyone asks me what they want to read, and they are kind of open to any suggestion I throw at them, I always tell them to read uh, Willem Flusser's Vampiratuthis Infernalis because uh, it's my favorite book of all time. It's also the weirdest book of philosophy and media theory that's ever been written. Um, it is a book that is profoundly strange. 
It's kind of about phenomenology. It's kind of about media. It's kind of about existentialism, but it's 100% about squids. And that's my, that's my jam. That's my personal brand right there. Uh, yeah. So why did you, why did you recommend this for us? Um, okay. Probably for a few reasons, I guess. Um, first of all, Willem Flusser is my all time, I think, favorite uh, philosopher or media studies guy. Um, he's really underread. And I think that's a bummer because he's super smart and very interesting. Um, this book, I think, is really fascinating because, okay, um, as a person with some degrees in philosophy, I'm going to be the first person here to say that philosophy is profoundly boring. It's like, you know, dry <laughs> and sometimes tedious to get through. Uh, but this book is a book of really, you know, pretty interesting philosophy that is not boring, that is extremely exciting and weird and makes you think about the world in a different way. Um so that's why I suggested it. That's for sure. Uh, Ash, what did you think about this? Um, this uh, uh, echoing a lot of that sentiment. I had never encountered um, uh, Willem Fluso before uh, uh, reading this or, or encountering this work at all. And um, this is this might be single handedly the greatest book I have ever <laughs> read. <laughs> the, this this was this was a trip, and I feel that that. You know, by the time I reached the end of this book, my my mind had like, you know, descended into this abyssal squid plane, uh, and this is this is now the perspective from which I view the world. Like this is this is a fantastic, fantastically bizarre, like like non-human centered analysis of philosophy and media and communication and sexual relations. Uh, 10 out of 10. Like and subscribe to, <laughs> to Willem Flusser. <laughs> okay, let's, let's, let's kind of like uh, start thinking about how this might be useful for um, these book club episodes are usually about kind of connecting uh, philosophy to what we sort of are maybe uh, speculatively or hesitantly referring to as the spooky left. Um, and maybe Matt and Dean, you can start like where where do you want to start with this uh, extremely extremely weird book <laughs> that is about existentialism and phenomenology but mostly about squid <laughs> uh yeah that's a good question because there are so many ways to get into it and the book itself is not really like linear um it takes you through some arguments for sure uh and there's a, a pattern of thinking but you can kind of dip into it i feel like wherever it gets you going um we could come at it in a lot of directions, but I want to read maybe just my favorite passage right in the beginning because I think it's like the weirdest thing. And maybe we could just sort of radiate out <laughs> from there and see what happens. Yeah. Um, so there are, I think, three translations of this book. And I think I have a different one than Matt has. So I probably won't refer to the page numbers. But in any case. Yeah, actually, if you're if you're playing along at home. <laughs> yeah. Um, Dean, I think that you have the one that's published by University of Minnesota. Yeah, that's right. Okay, there's another version that um, that Ash, John, and I have that's published by this other uh, company called Atropos uh, Publishing, and it's the translation from Portuguese. So the one that you have, I think, is translated from German. Yeah, that's right. It's a dis it's a distinction that some publisher made, <laughs> and that you can make too if you wanted to buy this book. <laughs> Sorry, Dean, go ahead. Yeah, I'll say both of them have their advantages. Uh, the one that you have has some really neat letters at the end that are really valuable, I think. Um, the one that I have, however, has some really wild uh, fake diagrams of squids, and uh, that's very cool. Um, but in any case, uh, on th in this book, the Minnesota book, it's page 12, but uh, the, you know, the idea comes across either way. 
Um, so it's a passage about the difference between Darwin and St. Francis in thinking through how evolution works. And uh, I mean, we, we have this podcast about Christianity and leftist politics, so it'll be unsurprising why this is a really great passage. Um, but let me sort of quote slightly at length, but hopefully not too much. So Flusser says this, uh, as far as we're concerned, life, the slimy flood that envelops the earth, is a stream that leads to us. We are its goal. We rationalize this feeling and base categories on it that allow us to classify living beings, namely into those that approximate us, incomplete humans, and those that depart from us are degenerate humans. Our biological criteria are anthropomorphic, based on a hollow and unanalytic attitude toward life. Darwin systematized this rationalization of the irrational and therefore must, in political terms, be placed on the right. St. Francis, however, belongs on the political left. He does not speak to lizards, our ancestors, but rather to birds, to the degenerate animals. Freedom of spirit consists of the attempt to overcome the constraints of Dasein, and this is what St. Francis ventured to do. We would do well to follow his example, that is, to overcome anthropocentrism and to examine the constraints of our life from the perspective of the vampiritudis. Uh, so I think, I don't know, that's that's one way that Flusser brings us into his own analysis is to kind of take the, the Franciscan path, if you will, into thinking about how squids experience their world and trying to think through what that also reveals about how humans experience our own world. Uh, and this idea that St. Francis would be a sort of leftist um, approach to thinking about human relationships with other creatures is really compelling and, and fascinating and opens up a lot of things. It's it's kind of a suggestive moment that Flusser doesn't return to, um, sort of like associative, but I think it's really generative and maybe get some themes on the table. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that sounds yeah. right to me. Um, it's also worth noting, too, that this book came out uh, far before all of the speculative realist stuff. Um, it'll sound, I think, a lot like some of the speculative realist stuff, um, but it's a, pre a precursor to it. And uh, I think that's a cool thing to note, too. And it kind of comes out in what Dean said, too. It's like a, a different approach to, you know, getting around anthropocentrism. Yeah, that was that was one of my uh, like like big takes while I was reading this is is how how much this kind of like forsages these speculative realists a uh, realist discourse that emerges afterwards. Yeah, definitely. Um, for people who are maybe not up on their contemporary philosophy, would uh, both or all three of you maybe like to kind of chip in a, a kind of why why is that important? What's the deal with the speculative realists? <laughs> I love that. I'm no one knows still. <laughs> um, yeah, speculative realism is a kind of recent thing that happened in philosophy in the early 2000s. Um, so it's kind of a response to this problem that this dude named Quentin Mayasu comes up with. I don't know if that's really how you say his name. I can't speak French and uh, probably not really how you pronounce it. Anyway, so the problem is called correlationism. Um, basically, it's a metaphysical problem where people tend to collapse thought and being into the same thing. So uh, basically the big the big deal is that um, when you assume that the world is the way that you think that it is in like your sort of perception of it, um, that's correlationism. So speculative realism is trying to always take a step back from that uh, from that correlationist sort of problem and try to think of the world as it is not through human thought, which is a silly sort of thing to do. <laughs> but that's what Flusser's doing too. That's kind of what, that's mm. the connection, I suppose. Is there anything else that I should add to that? I don't know. Dean, what else is going on speculative realism? <laughs> no, I think that's good. Um, there's 
probably lots more to be said, but I, I feel like these kinds of philosoph- uh, philosophy summaries are always best left uh, underdeveloped. Uh, one thing, though, that I might add is I think the crazy thing, though, about how the sort of St. Francis model of overcoming anthropocentrism works is that uh, it also doesn't seek to, like, remove the human. And that's a really bizarre thing about yeah. Flusser, which is a bit different from speculative realism, uh, where what Flusser is doing is creating this bizarre mirror by which the human can look at the vampire squid from hell. And the vampire squid from hell can also look at the human. Uh, and it's creating this this mm. weird dialectical relationship between humans and the non-human. Um, so I don't know what it is. I don't know what to call it, uh, but something very neat. Yeah, there's actually a pretty good quote. Can I pull it out? Yeah, go for it. Um, let me grab it really quick here. Yeah, so at the very end of the book, um, so Dean read something from the beginning to guide the conversation, and I'll just pull in something from the end, um, where he's kind of um, – Flister's going back and just explaining the big idea right behind, like why think about squids at all. And um, he comes across and says this. Um, Vampire Toothus emerges as our own mirror, as our antipode, in which all of our aspects are inverted. Therefore, to contemplate this mirror with the aim of recognizing ourselves in it, and with the aim of being able to alter oneself thanks to this recognition, is the purpose of every fable, including this one. Right, so it's um, it's a really... Okay, so the thing about Willem Flusser that's kind of interesting is his his approach to media and to communication and to philosophy is at this kind of like strikingly interpersonal level. Um, whereas some media theorists are people who think about, um, you know, media and communication at, at the level of systems. Flusser is usually thinking about it at the level of the individual and individual experience. So for this, um, Vampire Toothus is like a place where humans can, yeah, look at themselves and reconsider their role in the world. Um, it's a, it's a self-reflective moment. Um, it's a, it's a weird one, but that's what it is. Yeah, definitely. And I think the kind of way to connect that into things that may be going on in kind of horror studies as a, as a discipline is, to, is that it's through that route of anthropocentrism, because a lot of the time horror, horror is hugely anthropocentric. You know, what's horrific is that which is not uh, human or is made abhuman um, or is kind of liminal on the edge of becoming something that is other than human. Um, and what I really like about this entire book is, is um, as you said, it doesn't try and uh, like abstract humanity away from things. And I think that's sometimes a trap that speculative realists or writers who are sympathetic to speculative realism can fall into, that instead of undoing anthropocentrism, you kind of seek the kind of annihilation of humans. But you don't really need them to kind of think of the world. Uh, there's a really famous horror writer called Thomas Ligotti who wrote a non-fiction book uh, called The Conspiracy Against the Human Race, which is hugely depressing uh, and is all about the ways in which human consciousness is kind of like um, a contagion. Um, and so his his kind of point is that maybe um, he calls himself a pro-mortalist, so that it would be not an anti-natalist. He, he's very clear about that. He wants to call himself a pro-mortalist, that it would be better if everyone was just kind of gone. And I think that's a really reductive way of thinking about things. So I think... Fluss's point that maybe you can think uh, being in the world as something that is not kind of centered around one particular kind of being is really compelling and really interesting. 
Yeah, I wonder too, um, you know, as I was reading this book over again, uh, I kept thinking about reading it in the context of this podcast, thinking about horror, and there's so many references to hell uh, and, you know, spooky stuff. But there's also a lot of words that just bring you into how gross all of this is, like how disgusting the squid is compared to human beings. And it's like really <laughs> floppy and slimy. And like we said earlier, it's got three penises and uh, it like lives in this world of pure hatred. You know, it's like like Flusser is really trying to rhetorically like creep you out, make you feel repelled from from even reading mm. further potentially. Um, and I think too, like there's something that's always struck me about the Ligotti thing and the the sort of general cosmic pessimist outlook as somewhat conservative. Like, it's a, it's a bit easy to say, I uh, uh, just like wish everybody would be gone and then there wouldn't be any more problems, um, at least not the same kinds of problems. Uh, but I like that, like, Flisser's kind of like, actually, everything is like really messy and kind of gross and we have to deal with it. So, like, let's just get <laughs> as gross as we can. And I like that approach a lot. Yeah, existence is just weird. It's just weird, and it is 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 gross and slimy, and we have to deal with it. And that's the kind of existential challenge of kind of like horror philosophy. Um, I don't know if this is exactly true. So, okay, let's maybe I can say this before I say what I'm about to say. Uh, the very first part of this book is kind of like it's trying to lay out the phylogeny of the uh, vampire squid along lines of like um, evolutionary biology and this book was written kind of a, a while ago and I have no idea if it's actually biologically accurate um, but there's a ton of like really wild stuff that kind of brings out the grossness of, of vampire squids <laughs> like uh, there's one point where Flisser says that their mouth and their butt are the same thing <laughs> yeah. and I love that right. <laughs> uh, Ash what do you think yeah I really like that in concert with um uh, like, like how Flusser kind of theorizes disgust and horror, right? Uh, so so I'll, the one quote I'll read on this is, it is possible to imagine a phenomenology of disgust that supports the hypothesis that disgust recapitulates phylogeny. And I, I absolutely loved that because there are so many points in this book where he kind of like pauses like mid-discourse and he's like, by the way, just to remind you that the vampire squid would likely find humans and human society and culture and art completely incomprehensible <laughs> and disgusting on a visceral level, the same way we encounter them. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, right? And it ties back into this uh, notion of undoing anthropocentrism. And uh, it, like, there's a great book by Eugene Thacker that talks about the world as being essentially hostile because we tend to think of it as a place in which, you know, it can be ordered, it can be understood. And I think that's true, but only up to a point, because you get into these extremes of existence where actually it's like the vampire squid lives in a kind of uh, almost literal hell, mm -hmm. because it's a place that's so genuinely hostile to any kind of life. Um, I don't know, I just think that's really interesting. Yeah, maybe pulling on that a little bit more, here's a great quote from Flusser about, about that hell. Um, so he says, let us change our point of view and contemplate the abyss from a human perspective. We see, we see there a cold black hole under crushing pressure, full of fear, turmoil, inhabited by vicious and repugnant creatures that eat, eat each other with pincers and teeth. We see hell. And then he goes on later to say, uh, the abyss is a particular habitat that is inhabited by vampire toothus and habitable for him, but not inhabited by men. It is uninhabitable and unhabitable for them. For vampire toothus, mm. it is unwelcoming. For us, it is terrifying. Uh, what we must do if we wish to discover Vampire Toothless is try to habituate ourselves to the unhabitual, since we cannot inhabit the uninhabitable. So it's this 
this cool, I think, moment where we can kind of confront our anthropocentrism. Um, I mean, not get rid of it, but like uh, think about the abyss from the perspective of this other creature. Um, it's a pretty wild idea. It reminds me a lot of like that Thomas Nagel, what is it like to be a bat essay? But like, yeah, uh, this yeah, is yeah. way better and more fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's funny. Uh, I was talking to my partner, Emily, uh, when I was rereading this book just in the last week. And I've tucked her ear off about this book for like the last four or five years, I guess. Uh, but she is a nanny and uh, she watches these little kids. And she said the one thing that always sticks with her is this point about um, how like when humans encounter the world and they encounter it in these ways of disgust, like she sees it so much in the kids that she watches, right? Where like they're super freaked out by ants or like birds and butterflies are like really creepy for like no real good reason. Like they pose no actual threat, but there's this kind of, uh, you know, strangeness to it. And I was like, yeah. So that's really crazy. But what if you like told your kids that at the bottom of the ocean, there's a creature that lives in complete and total darkness. And like all it does is just eat whatever comes in front of it or like has sex with it. And she's like, yeah, that's not child appropriate. Uh, and like, that's the thing, right? It isn't it isn't child appropriate, but it belongs to our world with our children and everything. So there's something really unsettling about that. And also, if you actually okay, so the book is called Vampire Toothus Infernalis, right? The Vampire Squid from Hell. But if you look up a picture of the Vampire Squid, though, you're gonna you're gonna feel some warm and fuzzies because it's cute as hell, dude. <laughs> yeah. It's the cutest it's animal so I've ever seen. Adorable. Uh, it's so right? adorable. It's got these like giant, silly, floppy. I know. Ears. I love it. I know they're not, they're not not biological ears, but right. artistic, Pokemon poetic ears. ears. Um. Yeah. I think I think that's a really like. It's it's so interesting to see how like a kind of hierarchical, uh, yeah, a hierarchical ontology gets into the way that we see the world so quickly and so early. Uh, you know, from the point where where you where you're a kid and you can, can you can come across something that is in no sense a threat, or is in no is in in no way really dangerous, or in the case of the vampire squid, exists so far away that it would be sort of impossible for you to ever sort of like confront one in its natural habitat. Uh, but at the same time, it can have this effect of sort of putting us into sort of existential crisis, which I think is maybe what it is when like small kids come across butterflies or like bugs that they find really gross and creepy. It's not that they're like afraid of them. It's that like they're existentially troubling that you don't know what this is. There's a place in, uh, in this book and i don't remember exactly where it is but he uh flister is kind of reflecting on why it's gross to step on an animal with an exoskeleton right. rather than like internal bones and because since they're for, further away from us in the uh evolutionary tree they're like um you know grosser to us the invertebrates um just because they're further away from our evolutionary offshoot that's why we find them disgusting mm. i don't know if it's true uh but uh <laughs> it seems true in my own experience <laughs> you ever step on a bug without your shoes on it's like the worst well, yeah, oh, it yeah, kind of reminds yeah. me of a. Uh, did you ever see that movie Creep Show? It's like no. based on some Stephen King short stories. Um, I don't know if this is in Creep Show or Creep Show Two, but there's one short story where there's this guy who lives in like a completely sanitary apartment and like never goes outside and like he's got some kind of complex or whatever. But uh, all these roaches just like slowly start coming into his apartment, and then there's more and more and more of them. And then spoiler, they like eat him and he dies. Uh, but I was thinking, reading this book over again, uh, I came across that exact passage, Matt, um, how, like, 
So there's something really disgusting about that. But like you couldn't really write that same story where it was like a ton of like squirrels came in there and they like ate him and he died. Like it would still be like yeah, kind yeah. of horrifying, <laughs> but like it wouldn't be as gross. Like there's something even grosser about the idea of like, you know, this thing that could survive a nuclear bomb, like destroying you. <laughs> Yeah, because it destabilized that destabilizes the idea that kind of like existence is sort of for us in inverted commas, which I think is exactly what is, is Flusser is driving at, right? Yeah, totally. That that is like I mean, even even thinking that, you know, we live in the world with our children and with our friends and our weird houses and everything else, but the uh vampire squid is alive at the same time and like completely uninhabitable world that is on the same planet as us is a kind of troubling idea and the one other thing that i wanted to bring up is the way in which this book kind of uh pushes that even further by positing like a direct relationship between us and the vampire squid (laughs) though like we we would like to think of ourselves because this is a this is like a really long-standing kind of concern in any horror story is this idea of like you're safe from the monster because the monster can be kind of excommunicated. It can be placed outside of, outside of kind of like human relations. But what I really like about this book is the way in which it goes, actually, no, no, even, even though they live about as far away from us as it's possible to be, this is still their world as well as ours. Yeah. That had me, that had me thinking about about a lot of the, like, uh, horror movies that lean heavier into body horror, things like Slither and the Alien franchise, mm-hmm. yeah, that are that are kind of expressly about these like incredibly distant, incredibly non-human entities incorporating themselves into humanity and that functioning as like the central nexus of fear. Mm. This is a really weird pull, but uh, there's a show. It was like a BBC show called The Future Is Wild. I don't know if oh, you guys yeah. ever heard this. <laughs> Um, well, it's uh, basically the idea is like, well, what what will the world be like if um, all the humans die and then like animals continue to evolve and do their own thing or whatever? And there's this one. It's like a like a show with a you know a billion series or a, series, a billion parts in the series or whatever. But there's one where the um, where they talk about the ways that vampire squids would evolve to be um, above above water creatures. And there's like the scene where they like are swinging from trees, kind of like squirrels. But it's like, uh, but they're like still disgusting, like, like squids and like you know gelatinous and weird. Um, so, anyways, that the idea that they are you know so different than us is still terrifying. But that they could outlive us is something else altogether. That's true. Although uh, one thing that's sort of ironic about that um, that imagined future, based on what Flusser is saying here, is the uh, showrunners never really it never occurs to them to think that the squids probably wouldn't be sort of like primates in a certain way. Uh, right. right. So when you watch yeah. it, the squids mm-hmm. basically become monkeys, more or less, uh, and they slowly develop like what are essentially primitive human kinds of, of cultures and societies. Uh, but one thing that Flusser talks about is if you tried to imagine the politics of the Vampire Tutus Infernalis, it, they would be completely horrifying, right? Like they'd be primarily antisocial. Uh, they're motivated by this kind of weird suicidal drive. Um, you know, they're not the kinds of creatures that would probably like uh, be compelled to move on to land and build like tiny tribes of little squids, which is a, a really crazy thing. Like it's even crazier than than kind of speculatively imagining them, you know, swinging from the trees or something. Yeah, um, we should probably talk about the vampire toothus in politics and society chapters 
But yeah, um, before we get there, I think I think before we like we have to you have to talk about the the vampire toothless uh, like existence and the way that it experiences the world, um, because the phenomenological part of this book is kind of a big deal as well. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, the latter half of the book is almost all based on uh, Flusser's like phenomenological speculations. Um, so, OK, uh, in in his other works, Flusser is always interested in the ways that the body um, interfaces with media. Um, he has a book called Gestures that's really interesting where he's talking. There's a whole section about speech and whether or not humans are like birds who sing or or whether speech is a technology. So he's like really interested in the ways that humans use their bodies in the world as media. And he does the same kind of thing. Um, he does the same kind of thing with Vampire Toothless and Fernalis. But like um, when he does this, when he kind of compares the phenomenological the phen- the phenomenological experiences of both of them, uh, he comes up with some like drastically different types of worlds that kind of explain how polarized we are with uh, with vampire squids. So um, there's a section where he he's kind of riffing off of Merleau-Ponty and Bacillard, and he's talking about the ways that you know the ways that humans know the world. So like through our eyes for sure, but our hands are really important parts of knowing for Flusser. That like um, the way that you know something concrete is to pick it up and you you know bring it close to your face. Or something, and that's why you know you you hold something in your hand. You say, "Ah, I see," and that's how you know something, right? But um, that's a very sort of Heideggerian point, isn't it? The kind of yeah, uh, uh, being able being able to to have something uh, that is at hand that's usable. Yeah, that's absolutely absolutely right. Um, though uh, the the world for Vampire Toothless and Fernalis is like a really weird one that's pretty different, um, as one can imagine. Um, because uh, let's see, Vampire Toothless lives in darkness, which is a is a big deal. And um, according to Flusser, at least they have chromatophores, which are like the glowing sections of its skin. So instead of like it, its eyes, like you know, being something that take in light, its body produces the light that its eyes use to find and know the world. Um, and then also they're tentacular; they have eight tentacles that surround their mouth slash butt and uh that's what they use to bring things into their body right so this is um this part where um flisser says this uh for man knowing is a gesture that advances against the world an active gesture and that for vampire toothless knowing is a gesture that grasps the world as a passive gesture so like it's the idea that man is like humans right not to be sexist about it is like out to um grasp the world but vampire toothless floats through the world and kind of takes it in um mm. and this really interesting like th- this is i guess like what's i what i find so interesting about the um the book is that this is how um this is how detailed flusser gets into talking about the differences and how how polarly opposite um we are against these other types of creatures Awesome. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was wondering who was going to be brave enough to follow all that up. Um, yeah. Yeah. Go on, Ash. Go, go on. on. No, go okay, on. Yeah, yeah. I think, that, I think that's absolutely fantastic. And, like, another – I think it's in that same section where he's talking about grasping and the difference of how humans and vampire squids as organisms can even encounter reality – uh, there's, there's this, this is phenomenally wild, uh, uh, line he writes, and that's this third penis serves when not copulating as an organ to grasp objects, as if we men grasp the world not only with fingers, but also with a penis. And like, obviously, uh, that's like ludicrous on the surface, right? Like prehensile penises is like comical, you know, like that's a, a longstanding joke. 
but I think like like on a deeper philosophical level, like just how fundamentally that would change perceptions of societal interactions mm-hmm. is is incredibly interesting and and kind of really unsettling on a fundamental level. And that's the, one of the things I really liked about this book is that Flisser keeps throwing stuff like this at you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, one thing that's bizarre about it too, right, is that Flisser tries to bring human uh, ways of thinking about the world to bear on the vampire squid too. So anytime you start talking about penises and perceiving the world, obviously you got to start thinking about Freud. And so Flisser does mm-hmm. that, right? Yep. He he tries to psychoanalyze a vampire to this infernalis. And uh, what he finds is like genuinely terrifying, right? So if if Freud is unsettling enough, you know, like most people's first encounter with Freud, I think is kind of like abject in certain ways. Like you sort of see yourself in it, but you don't want to at the same time. Um, if that is an awkward experience, uh, reading those categories into the squid is, is even worse. So, you know, when you like Freud, at least, and, and Freud's followers, in particular, Flusser is interested in, in Wilhelm Reich in particular. Uh, there's a lot of room still for things like thinking through love and how people relate to each other in a healthy way, etc. Uh, but when you start thinking about what humans think about love or, or could think about love in a Freudian way, what ends up being revealed is that because of this, you know, three penis uh, creature sort of just getting tossed around by the ocean, they're actually a creature of like total and pure hate. Uh, and that is such a mm-hmm. like crazy thing to kind of for Flusser to just put on the table, right? That if we tried to use human categories, it would force us to say very weird things about these animals. Y- yep, you're absolutely right. So yeah, vampire <laughs> vampire toothless is a creature of pure hate. Is something that Flusser says, but also that like the basis of their society. Um, right. This is in the vampire toothian thought. Is um, not just hate, but also sex, which is like bad. Bad combination, I would suggest. Um, but uh, there's this wild part where he says, well, so the, the three penis thing, the prehensile penis thing is a big deal. Um, there's this part where Flusser says that the vampire toothless impregnates all he sees, right? Because that's what he's like grasping things with. Um, but also it says that uh, for vampire toothless, sex is the foundation of all world. Sorry. Sex is the foundation of the world of appearances and it impregnates all appearances. Sex is public. Um, vampire Toothian philosophy is therefore is before all else a critique of sex. And um, man, it is a wild thing to say. I don't I'm not like I don't even think I don't think I really even understand it. But like it's it's this weird way of apprehending the world where um, the tools and instruments are so drastically different than ours and are, you know, on the one hand, it is kind of like the anthropomorphization of the vampire squid's body. But on the other hand, I guess it's kind of like a, a judgment, I suppose, of just the ways that the vampire squid deals with the world through its like various organs, which are, you know, sexual in nature. It's uh, something to think about, if if nothing else. Yeah, and it goes back to his interest in Wilhelm Reich as well, right? This This idea of the kind of liberatory... Uh, potential of of orgone energy, as, as Reich writes about throughout the 30s and 40s, uh, in some stuff which is really weird but also extremely interesting. Um, and I I think this this idea of uh, the the va- vampire squid philosophy being basically a a critique of sex is is fascinating. And like you, I don't I don't know if I really get it, um, but it is this notion of like what is it to exist in the world in a way that is not human is 
an important question, especially if you try and think of that in a way that can't be reduced down to being either incomprehensible or being kind of monstrous. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe more on the monstrous front. Um, God, this book is so wild. Um, so Flusser goes on to talk about, um, okay, so it grasps the world as a being of pure hate towards sex as the sort of foundation of its, you know, operating functions. Uh, but uh, he goes into also the ways that he sees Vampire Toothus as a communicating animal. Like Dean said earlier mm-hmm. that, you know, uh, the vampire squid is pretty antisocial, right? Because they live in this, you know, they live in hell or whatever, and they don't see one another very often. <laughs> but when they do, um, he, he describes a type of like intersubjective um, or interpersonal communication between the vampire squid. And again, I don't know if this is actually true, but it makes for a wild ass book of philosophy. <laughs> um, so there's a few, a few things that, um, that Flusser says. So first of all, like humans uh, have hands to see the world and vampire toothless has uh, tentacles, but also uh, the, the vampire squid has a venomous saliva that paralyzes life around him without killing it. And that's how he can mentally digest the world, which is a weird idea. Um, but then another one that's pretty good too, um, that uh, vampire toothless and vampire toothless infernalis uh, emits a cloud of sepia and models it to copy its own outline outlines and escapes. Um, and he goes on to talk more about how sepia clouds are media for intersubjective communication, either between like another animal or um, another vampire squid. Uh, but the the wild thing is that like when it's making these like it, it models its sepia to look like something. And uh, Flusser says that it only does that to either attract a mate or to trick a mate into coming into its like sort of proximity and then cannibalizing it. Um, so that's about as monstrous as it gets. It's hate <laughs> and sex all in one. <laughs> I love it. I love it and hate it all at the same time. It's it's so it's so bad, but also so satisfying to me to, for me to know about. Yeah. Well, let me throw this out at the both of you, at all three of you. Um, so coming back to the kind of left right distinction that Flusser makes at the very beginning of the book, he says that he's taking the left path, right, and he's he's modeling that on something like Francis. So for folks who don't know, Saint Francis, like famously in the legends talks to animals and he like gets a bear to stop attacking a village at one point for example he like chats with the birds a bunch and uh he wrote a famous prayer where he it's sort of a hymn to creation and he talks about things in the world as his siblings so you know brother brother sun and sister moon uh, all these kinds of things and on the way down and so you get this real sort of egalitarian uh contextualization of the human person in the world um but one thing that's crazy about flusser is if you end up taking that tack to try to say that the vampire squid is a sibling uh is a as a huge challenge right and flusser is trying to make that as difficult as possible is to say that that is a sibling in the world or something that even belongs in the world like there's there are moments in here where flusser kind of either ends up saying that the vampire tutus is either an extremely reactionary libertarian like a horrible capitalist uh or the like vampire (laughs) squid is basically a fascist like it's one of the two um so yeah what does it mean to take his idea seriously that this is a kind of left approach to thinking about you know our place in the world with the with all these other things that sort of displace us in the world i mean it seems it, to me it's something i'm still thinking about so i'm kind of hoping that maybe some other people can shed some light on it uh yeah yeah um hmm. where to go off of that i i think approaching approaching this 
kind of philosophical stance from the left leads us to some interesting places, especially how we would consider the left in our present condition, right? Like Flusser definitely paints a picture of the vampire squid being like proximally evil on human terms. It's a cannibal. It's driven by pure hate. You know, it's not, you wouldn't want one hanging out with you. You know, if you could, you probably wouldn't make the choice. But I think that there there is something like like while I was reading this text, I kept noticing like there's like an animal liberation strain, like a liberatory strain going through this text, because he's giving all of this agential power back to the vampire squid, and even even though his conclusion is that it's a very dark being, he's still placing it back on the level with humans, and it's not he's not viewing them from. Uh, the position that we usually view, uh, like natural, like quote unquote natural objects, through subjugation, right? The, the vampire squid isn't object to him; it's agential. And I thought that was an interesting kind of like left perspective, even though he thinks the squid is kind of dark. Yeah, I think that's a good um, that the agency of the squid is a good one. Um, that's actually one of the defining characteristics of uh, vampire toothian social life that he talks about later in the book. Dean, you said that he was a that the vampire toothus is like you know a fascist or a capitalist or something, but in the uh, the version the translation of the text we have, uh, <laughs> um, uh, Flusser calls the vampire toothus an anarchist, which is pretty interesting too. Yeah, but I think like the mm. you know like the extreme individualist type. Um, right. That's like the, uh, the libertarian the, strand or whatever. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, well, the he starts off talking about like fraternity and equality and, and the, um, the vampire toothless infernalis. It's like, um, it's for it to become like its own agent in the world has to break with that equality. Cause it says, you know, it looks identical to all of its siblings. And only when it kind of breaks with that, that identicalness and breaks away, uh, does it become its like own thing. When, when the vampire toothless engages himself, he becomes an anarchist is what Flister says. Uh, he breaks those familial bonds mm. and, uh, it, I, I don't know, like, what does it mean to have to to think of the to think of the vampire squid as a uh, sibling is a tough idea because it doesn't want to be anyone's sibling, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. That, that's the thing um, is that uh, while while our um, Franciscan kind of approach to understanding the world might let us, uh, you know, might give us a space to understand something that is like in our terms of morality evil you know like while we can think of it as existing at the same time the vampire toothless probably wouldn't want us to exist at the same time right it's a it's a really hard idea yeah i think the thing that i would add is that maybe it involves a kind of uh removal of the human subject from the kind of fulcrum point of making sense of the world um and it it to, to be honest it made me think of an idea which I maybe talked about before from Simon Critchley and that notion of kind of ontological indebtedness. So <clears throat> instead of thinking of like, what does it mean to have kinship with the, the vampire squid? It's the, maybe a, another way of thinking about it is what does it mean that we are, despite our kind of moral and aesthetic repulsion, that we are kind of ontologically entwined with this creature? And what does that say about us? rather than what does it say about that kind of relationship. Dang, that's all, all three yeah. of those are extremely helpful. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm I'm glad because they're not helpful for me. It's just more confusing. <laughs> um, <laughs> later on, uh, Flister goes on to say that. Uh, sorry, I'm just like I'm the quote guy in this podcast right now, um, but that's fine. Uh, he goes on to say the vampire toothless is not the opposite of man, even though he says he's the opposite of man later. But instead, the repressed side, just as humans are the repressed side of vampire toothless, right? And that kind of gets at maybe not the same point, right? That we shot that we share a type of ontological situation where we have to live in the same world. Um, but it also recognizes too that like what is what is so terrible about uh, vampire toothless and Fernalis is also like I don't like the the repressed part of humanity, like all of the worst things that. Um, I mean, we only know we only know what's so bad about the vampire squid because we know that those things are things that humans are also capable of as right. well, right? So there's a sense in which uh, it acts in the way that we don't want to act, that we want to actively repress, and I think that's part of what makes it so uncomfortable to share this world with it. Well, yeah, because now we're getting into the kind of question of the philosophical significance of the category of the monster, right? Which, like, loads, loads, and loads of. Uh, gothic and horror studies has written about this there's a great short essay called seven theses on monsters by jeffrey cohen that says that um the monster is a kind of harbinger of category crisis and this goes back into a really old the kind of well-established psychoanalytic idea of the 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 struggle to cohere the subject as sort of a fixed uh, and and sensible idea is constantly under threat by things which seek to invade our sort of isolation from the world and the the bits that we kind of pushed out to make I. Um, And also monsters are signs of things as well. That's another thing that Cohen says, that monsters monsters both reveal something about ourselves and they they show us, they they point outwards to something else that is kind of threatening to come in, which is, that's the kind of very, that's the philosophical condition of of horror. That's, That's where horror emerges. I think that makes sense. That's what makes uh, the vampire squid uh, so scary. Well, it's what makes him seem scary in Fluss's writing. But again, he's really cute in real life. So, <laughs> and also, but a but very cute monster. What makes them? What makes them interesting? Yeah. and that and that's the important thing, right? Monsters are not just scary. Monsters are fascinating, mm. and we're kind of drawn towards them. Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna kind of go off of that and say, like, especially within like the gothic and horror context, like. The second you create a monster, you necessarily create space to identify with and acknowledge your own internal relationship to it. Mm-hmm. And so Flusser's framing of the vampire squid necessarily opens up pathways to identify with it. Like there are so many ways in which we cannibalize each other and ourselves in, in our culture and our society, even if it's not, you know, the direct literal eating of the person next to you on the bus you know, we are cannibalizing the lives of people in the global south for production. We're cannibalizing bits of ourselves every day when we like punch a clock at a day job or something like that. And like, you know, like the we could also tie that into like the fact that the he frames the vampire squid as kind of like ambiently drifting through the ocean and encountering what it encounters as it travels. And in a lot of sense, that kind of mirrors Marxist alienation. You know, we, we also lack a lot of that agency. You know, the greater tide of capitalism has kind of washed us out in the same way that the vampire squid does. And does that necessitate the same kind of hatred-centric squid-based worldview, <laughs> but mapped onto something with decidedly less feet? I like that way of thinking about it, too. Like, especially when it comes to, like, sex and relationships and hatred. 
um, in, in terms of cannibalization. Something else that Flister says in the book uh, is that somehow, I'm not exactly sure how this works, but uh, I don't know how any of this works. The vampire squid is also monogamous. So like not only does it um, lie to its possible mates and then maybe eat them, it also only ever takes one. And there's something like really patriarchal about that type of repression um, that, you know, um, there, there are all types types of ways we can think about the way uh, in where men cannibalize the bodies of their partners. Um, you know, obviously not physically, but um, through their time and the exploitation of women in domestic labor or in childbirth. Um, I mean, it is like a, a real bodily type of sacrifice that uh, women often make. Yeah, I think that I think that that's really interesting that you point out that like. Flusser is is like kind of like largely perceiving the vampire squid through like human heteronormative cisgendered sexual relations, mm-hmm. and and even within that, um, there's there's the section where he's kind of like I don't know um, I, I tried to look up some like modern like scientific like Discovery Channel facts about the vampire squid to see if any of this stuff is like real or holds up, but I couldn't find anything about this this next particular part. But when he's talking about how the three penises work. You know, only one of only one of the vampire squids, three penises, is used to inseminate the the female vampire squid. The uh, the second one, Flusser writes, is is used to to like stimulate the pleasures of the female squid through an orifice in the mouth. And the third one, uh, Flusser writes, that uh, it it rubs the belly of the female squid for no known reason. And I think that that is a really interesting framing that even though he's kind of like stuck in this kind of like heteronormative, cisgendered, uh, anthropocentric view of sexual relations that he's trying to map onto or read through the vampire squid, he's kind of like baffled or, or reluctant to to embrace these things that are kind of like, okay, like if we continue that, it's obviously like a pleasurable exchange Yeah, man. Who knows? <laughs> who knows? It's a real, it's a real big question there. Uh, yeah, you. I. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if any of the people who will listen to this are experts on the reproductive uh, <laughs> systems of like deep water squid. But if oh, you, I guarantee you, some of our fans are familiar with the. Topic. There's one marine biologist sitting at home, just being like, just screaming through, like at her own headphones. Oh. <laughs> They've already like thrown their laptop against the wall. Yeah, there are I, only two penises. <laughs> I think. I think that is also maybe one of the that comes back to the problem of anthropomorphizing these creatures. But I also do think that point that there is a sort of dialectical relationship uh, that we would try and disavow between the kind of uh, the, the normal in inverted commas functions of humanity versus the evil monstrous uh, functions of the vampire squid is really uh, important and kind of interesting to try and think about yeah it's a um, it's definitely a weird oh sorry go ahead Dean no you go ahead well, all I was going to say is that it's like a really um, interesting place to philosophize from, uh, if that's your starting point. It's just like a, a drastically different way to look at the world. Yeah, totally. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> I wanted to maybe kind of as we're wrapping up a little bit, uh, bring us to some weird stuff that Flusser says in his own reflecting toward the end of the book about how to reflect on the vampire Tutus. Because uh, there's a part of it where he mentions the danger of maybe accidentally turning into a Nazi if you like do it wrong. <laughs> which is kind of a big deal. Um, so he talks quite a lot about what you were saying earlier, Matt, about this, uh, the vampire Tutus represents what's repressed in the human uh, in a really troubling kind of way, right? Like we know that it's bad because we know that humans are capable of it. Um, and he says this, uh, Felicity says this, in, in this light, uh, we should be somewhat wary of those who condemn surfaces in their pursuit of the depths. Although they allege to be seeking what's human in the Vampirotutus, it's more likely that they will discover what is Vampirotutic in themselves. Despite their purported intention of converting mm. its wickedness into benevolence, it is in fact their human benevolence that will be converted for the worse. By desiring to bring heaven to hell, it is hell that is exalted. And at the present, there is nothing more hazardous than such a renaissance of romanticism. Uh, and I think mm. that also sort of just speaks more to the opportunities and dangers that there are, even in Flisser's own attempt to do this kind of work. Uh, and as other people think about horror and that sort of thing, I don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about horror because I'm a, a very wimpy guy. I don't like scary stuff. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think the reason that is, is because I have exactly this fear that like, if I like get too into it, maybe I'll accidentally, I don't know, become a bad person or like it'll infect me or something, you know, like I think that's sort of the sub conscious part of me that resists watching like super scary movies <laughs> but i wonder what you all think about that you know that there's this kind of like clear and present danger that flisser is pointing to um which of course isn't just analytic but uh i mean he's talking about it in the context of sort of the actual project of nazism and and these kinds of, of things yeah. yeah yeah of course i think that the uh the link between the way he thinks about like you know the types of evil repression that humans are capable of is and, and nazis is, is really important um, we, we didn't really contextualize Flisser's life at all. And we don't really need to like, you know, do a biography or, of him or anything, but, uh, uh, all of Flisser's family, except he and his wife, uh, were all, they all died in Buchenwald. So there's like, um, there's this way that, uh, Flisser's life had been extremely affected by fascism and Nazism specifically. Um, but I think that you're, that you're right, Dean, that like, um, well, I, I don't know. There is like there's that feeling of um, this. This is why. Okay, sorry. So I teach at an evangelical Christian school, which is extremely wild. Um, but this is actually the same sentiment that a lot of my students share when I talk to them about horror in some classes and stuff. Right? That um, that horror, when it comes to uh, the monstrous or even like especially the supernatural, is particularly like they have a particular allergy to it because they think that. Um, you know, by watching that type of content that like the, the repressed will become unrepressed or, you know, that they'll be possessed or whatever. Um, but I think there's something similar going on here. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I mean, I think the, the point that I would, I would bring up is like, just because something is repressed, doesn't mean it isn't already there. Yeah, yeah for sure. Right. You, d you don't, <laughs> and I, and to kind of offer a sort of a counter point, um, and maybe something that I think Flusser is sort of getting at throughout the whole book is the necessity for a kind of epistemological humility where you go, you can't, you can't, you can't save in inverted commas. You can't evangelize to the vampire squid uh, because of precisely what will happen uh, that he talks about there where he says that you'll elevate hell. You'll elevate the very worst aspects that are already present within yourself, right? Horror doesn't necessarily show us anything that, that is... Kind of intrinsically true about the world 
But one of the, the reasons that I personally I'm really interested in horror is, is that I think it shows me things about myself. Uh, and I think the, the key to avoiding that is to not try and uh, impose a kind of totalizing discourse of like, I will fix this thing, but to, to accept the, um, the notion that maybe that there are some things which are beyond the kind of human potential of fixing. Um, I, I, I used to really have a very difficult time sort of getting my head around the, the idea of kind of uh, uh, the doctrine of original sin for very similar reasons, going, no, this is, this, is, this is nonsense, but there's this great book by Alan Jacobs called Sin, A Cultural History, where he talks about that as being a sort of ground for collective solidarity. Because if you go, well, all that we've got is ourselves and all of us are uh, equally sort of uh, riven with these repressed uh, vampiric urges and desires that we try and sort of get rid of. If we start from the kind of point of view that like, actually, you know, we're all, we're all pretty bad a lot of the time, then that is, that's maybe a kind of collective ground for solidarity and, and, and action because all that can kind of get us out of this is one another. Mm. There's also, yeah, I think that's I think that's a cool way to put it. Um, a minute ago, when you were saying, you know, you like horror because it tells you something about yourself, right? And and that fascist impulse might come in if you were to try to find a way to like fix those things. I'm not a I'm not a Lacanian, and I don't actually like psychoanalysis very much at all. But um, Lacan's thing about you know um, enjoying your symptom might have something to do with that as well. Like you know you yeah totally. Um, you encounter horror as kind of a philosophical object in your life that makes you reflect on your own position and your own desires and how weird they might be. But, um, you know, changing those desires is difficult. So maybe, um, try, but don't try too hard. Yeah. yeah um, go on, Ash. Sorry. Oh yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say kind of building off, uh, a lot of these points and a lot of these threads. Um, so something that kind of popped into my mind uh, while we were talking about this is that, you know, like, like we're having this discourse around an animal that that is, you know, increasingly being made monstrous in the text, even though, like, in, in reality, it's just just another squid. You know, there's so not cute. too much that's more cute. cute. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, there's not so much that's meaningfully more disgusting or horrifying about the vampire squid than there is about any other kind of cephalopod. But what I would say is that, you know, when we when we have discourse about the monstrous and when we make something monstrous you know we were necessarily making it the other and we're kind of bringing it into discourse with everything that's othered in society as a whole and i think that viewing that as, as kind of like potentially containing within it a fascist threat is almost reactionary and my uh, <laughs> like a completely normal example of that uh would be uh, f a famous uh, alleged cunt man <clears throat> and definitely not total grifter Jordan B. Peterson. <laughs> he he built his entire like like fame discourse are using like lobsters and wrens, you know, mm. like super common, not very monstrous regular animals, and he used them to build an extremely misogynistic fascist discourse. You know, like he didn't need to go to the monstrous to find this. He just like looked out his window and saw Ren, and he was like, "Oh yeah, we should be fascists. That's right." Any any two, two for two <laughs> stunned him. <laughs> any any. I mean, I think that's interesting, and I think I think I I get what the kind of anxiety that Fluss is articulating there in that bit that Dean read, 
And I think that that's a great way of articulating the distinction between somebody like Peterson and somebody like uh, Flusser, because I do think that key point of like destabling anthropocentrism, uh, a, a humility about what is our place in the world and its relationship with other forms of life is really potentially really useful and can include can include a a uh, a social politics that could maybe conceivably even redeem the monster um but whereas you have someone like peterson who is like let's let's bring out all of the very worst things about lobster hierarchies <laughs> and artificially impose them onto human social relations it's exactly what Flusser goes, no, yeah, don't do right. that. That's that's <laughs> that's yeah. <laughs> that's literally the the opposite of what I wanted you to do. That is something that someone ought to do. Just make a really great Jordan B. Peterson uh, parody YouTube account where they just read the entire world as the horrible, horrible social life of the vampire squid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, cool. Any any final thoughts? Any any last points that you want to kind of try and bring in uh just that you guys need to go look up a picture of a vampire squid immediately just to just to like you know they're not as bad as he makes them sound and i i don't want anyone to get the wrong idea about these extremely cute little guys um from this book uh yes absolutely they are sort of adorable um and yeah, I was it, I was reading about uh, just just briefly about like you know like like how they live and their biology and they're able to like invert their tentacles and wrap themselves yeah. with it and turn into like a little like defense <laughs> ball, and and biologists refer to that as pumpkin. Oh form. my god! And like that is just <laughs> the cutest damn thing. <laughs> they do look extra horrifying though when in pumpkin form. <laughs> oh well, yeah, right. that's true. Uh, in October, uh, the squid lanterns. Oh, squid lanterns! Yeah. I would like that. They're basically like a cute Thulu. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but if we learn anything um, closer, if you step on them, it will be extra disgusting. Absolutely. They've got no bones, but also a skull. How does that even work? I think they have two brains as well. Man, I have no idea if any of it's true, though. <laughs> this book has just been wild. Yeah. This book has been so... This has easily been the weirdest uh, bit of... Uh, non-fiction on on the show yeah i would love to know if they're if they're any way similar to like just regular octopodes or something um because like you know the octopus is something that lives way closer to the surface it can like deal with humans i don't know it'd be an interesting comparison they're not maybe as hellish as the vampire squid Next time we come on, we should read but, there some. Uh, I think he's like an analytic philosopher, maybe, but at the very least, not a flusser, <laughs> not not going in the wild directions of flusser. Wrote a book about thinking like an octopus or a squid not too long ago. That came right, out. I haven't read yeah. it, but that might be a good sequel. And also, there's a wild book by um, Jacques Cousteau about octopus and squids, and it's like a very uh, existentialist approach to their social life under the sea. So, who knows? There's more way, more than one way to uh, create the mirror of a squid, I guess. Squid philosophy. I I am so I'm so here for this. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I think this has been this has been interesting and thought provoking and mind bending in all the right ways. Uh, final important question: What can we plug for the Magnificast? 
um, we've got a podcast. It's called The Magnificast. We also right now have another podcast behind our Patreon wall called The Damnificast, which is uh, our attempt to slowly go through this really wild TV show called Damnation. Um, it's a show, a uh, Western set in 1930s Iowa in at the height of a really significant labor strike. And there's even a Marxist preacher in it. Um, that's what we're up to now. What else have we got going on, Matt? Um, I don't know. That's like the big, the big stuff right there. Um, you can find us at our Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast and you can get all of our episodes early. And we have a book, uh, a book club coming up. Where we're going to read a book called communism in the Bible by Jose Miranda. And it should be pretty legit. Um, I'm just now realizing that this conversation is probably a really bad representation of what our podcast is about. Cause it's not about squids <laughs> even a little bit. No, um, not even a little, but if you like socialism and you're interested in religion, this is definitely a podcast for you. There, not well, squids. The, uh, uh, nothing to do with squids. The octopus of capitalism, the octopus of papism. I mean, there's a lot of octopi around. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Uh, yes, absolutely. Horror Vanguard strongly endorses the Magnificast uh, in in all of its glorious works. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, do, I think a lot of our listeners who might not listen to the Magnificast already would absolutely love it if they did. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If you if you count yourself as part of the the spooky left, if you're interested in the uh the spiritual, the religious, the uh non-material, I would strongly endorse listening to the Magnificast. And I'm not just saying that because they were very kind enough to have me on uh, for an episode to talk about Altazar and and Catholicism, which was extremely cool. Um you should also follow them both on Twitter. We'll, as I said at the top of the hour, we'll put um, their Patreon links, their Patreon links, the the Magnificast links, and Matt and Dean's Twitter handles in the show notes. Um, but otherwise, thank you so so much for coming. Yeah, thanks for having thanks us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for tuning in, creeps and comrades, and remember, stay, stay spooky. spooky.